You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media at Council of DC. Uh, welcome back, listeners. It's been a while since we've had uh, new interview, new content. So uh, thank you very much to our guest at large council member, Christina Anderson, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's good to be with you. Um, now, I am maybe wrong about this. I'm guessing that you are a Rachel Maddow fan. I am. And in fact, I was just reading um, her piece in the Vanity Fair about this. Um, I won't call it a sabbatical, but this break that she's taking from. Her yeah, yeah, yeah. Show. Yeah. Um, well, as a as a fan of the show, you you know that a fan of the Rachel Maddow show, you know that often she starts the show way out in left field and you're thinking, where is she going with this? But she <laughs> always brings the plane down. Um, and I figured uh, because of the themes we wanted to talk about today, I was going to do a Rachel Maddow approach. Okay. So bear with me. We're going to take a minute or two. We're going to start way out here and then we're going to end up with the, the local policy topics we want to talk about. Sounds good. Um, so anyone who has ever joined a new uh, social media um, uh, stream knows that the closer the time between when it's founded and when you pick your username, the better luck you have. So anyone who's gotten the Gmail address recently knows not only is first name, last name going to be taken, first dot last, all of those are going to be taken. You're going to end up with something like Josh Gibson 2863 at Gmail. Um, you can judge uh, when people join social media based on how good or bad their handle is. Um, like, for example, Twitter was started in March of 2006. Um, Jack Dorsey, who founded it, has the handle at Jack because he also joined as soon as Twitter started. Um, local food blogger Tammy Gordon, who has my favorite local uh, Twitter handle, is at Tammy. And that's pretty badass um, to have that kind of Twitter handle. She joined a couple of years in. Now, our current guest, uh, Christina Henderson, has at C. Henderson, which is not quite at Tammy badass, but is still pretty good. And that speaks to me about someone who is well-tuned in the arts of Twitter. And a couple of your recent tweets I found quite well done. Um, and they're on two policy topics that we wanted to talk about today. So anyway, that's my Rachel Maddow date. Twitter was founded to the two topics we want to talk about, um, which are uh, abortion rights. Abortion access um, is the first topic um, and how things stand in the current uh, crisis. We're living on that front, uh, specifically in D.C. And then the second topic is early childhood education because there was some lively uh, Twitter discussion of the state of D.C. legislation on that. Um, but why don't we get started first with uh, the overturning of Roe? Mm -hmm. um, what I appreciated was in the moments after the decision dropped, 
most of the content on Twitter was understandably full of anger, uh, full of fear, full of sadness. Um, but I thought your tweet, which did well, um, was very uh, helpful. You said, I want to make it abundantly clear that in our local laws, the District of Columbia, we're a safe haven for women seeking unrestricted access to reproductive health care. We must not go backwards. And that's a reminder that at least for the moment, locally, mm-hmm. uh, things have not changed at all legislatively. And if anything, we're reminded how important these rights are and how essential it is to protect them. So uh, can you? Give us a sense of um, how, first of all, how you were feeling when that news broke and then your immediate pivot to brass tacks, to how do we keep things safe and let women know that they're um, protected in the district. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, and, And for that opening and for that context, you know, it's interesting when it comes to Roe v. Wade and abortion rights and abortion access, I think for a lot of us, we always knew the day would come. We always knew that Dodd's decision, Dobbs' decision was possible. Um, Because even before that happened, the fight for Roe was happening in the states or states and local jurisdictions, right? States were chip, chip, chipping away. And while people were so focused on the Senate and the Supreme Court, um, state legislatures around the country had already been chipping away at access um, for women. And so, you know, I was kind of prepared, even when we saw the leaked draft opinion, I was like, okay, I thought that I had mourned all of those pieces. But you know, that morning um, when we did get the the real Supreme Court um, ruling on the case, it just felt like a ton of bricks on my chest. Not necessarily thinking about D.C., but thinking about just women in general across the country, thinking about my kids, thinking about then taking a step further of, OK, D.C. is safe today. But I know that there are Republicans in Congress who would love nothing more than to pass legislation for a nationwide ban, or if they can't get that, passing legislation to just ban it in the nation's capital. And so that impacts D.C. We are uniquely situated in a very unprotected way uh, because we do not have statehood. And... um, I just wanted to make clear to people that for today, right? Like don't cancel your appointment. Um, Women here, women in neighboring jurisdictions, you know, you still have an option here if you can get to us. Um, And so, yeah, it's just gonna be an ongoing battle. We see that struggle happening every day. Yeah, I, I just got back from some international travel. And when you try to explain to folks in other countries how prior to the overturning of Roe, the right to abortion was protected. It sounds crazy for such an essential right to have been created in a Supreme Court opinion that created or uh, detailed a right to privacy. Mm -hmm. In most countries, it says the right to an abortion is protected under law. Um, And the fact that for so many decades, we lived in this tenuous existence 
where there was this one Supreme Court decision that was holding things together, um, it raises so many questions in other countries. They're like, well, why don't you just pass a law if it's yeah. so important? <laughs> there are a lot of times uh, I think people in other countries look at the American political system, which is supposed to be this like gold standard in terms of democracy, gold standard in terms of debate. And they're like, y'all, y'all don't make no sense. And I, I can't even um, argue with them against that fact. Um, I went to grad school with uh, Rebecca Gompertz, who was the founder of Women on Waves. It is a international organization that essentially helps women get abortions in countries where it is illegal. I mean, they even go so far as for a period of time, um, they had a boat where they would um, go pick up women, take them out to what is considered international waters, perform the abortions, and then return folks home, right? They're following, um, she, um, was a Dutch citizen or following Dutch law. She was a Dutch citizen. And I remember at the time, this was like um, 2011, 2012, her talking about the things that they were going through in other countries just seemed so like surreal in terms of the restrictions. And then, you know, even this morning, I was reading an article in Politico that was talking about a judge ruling um, in Florida that a 16 year old girl was not mature enough to have an abortion, even though she was 16, didn't want the child and was still in school, right? So like, <laughs> you're not mature enough to make a decision to have an abortion, but you are mature enough to birth and have a child. Like, it doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. Uh, the headlines in the United States are starting to look like the headlines in other countries. And, you know, I introduced legislation even way before the Dobbs decision for the council to just close the loopholes and some of the gaps that we had, um, because I saw that, you know, a lot of the focus around abortion, right, com abortion rights conversations have been focusing on clinical care, uh, a, a woman who's actually going into a clinic to receive an abortion that way, when in fact, we know that a growing number of women choose to self-manage their abortions at home. So um, either your doctor provides you with a prescription, you go pick it up, you take the drugs, um, and, 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 the, and the, you are able to manage the process in your own home. And I felt like that's going to be the next frontier. I hate to call it the frontier, but like that will, that will be the next thing that um, anti-abortion activists will try to attack. Um, not just the self-managed abortion piece, but criminalizing anyone who participates in it. We've seen that happen in Texas. And then um, taking it a step further to like all the way back to what the United States used to be like with the Comstock laws of basically trying to say, providing any abortion material through the mail is illegal, right? Um, there used to be a time for, for your listeners with the Comstock laws, like um, any lewd, quote, unquote, <laughs> lewd material um, was co considered illegal um, to be sent through U.S. Postal Service, and that included birth control, right? So, like, um, it's weird when you think about sometimes, like, how history repeats itself, but we have to have these conversations to make sure, okay, have we fully, like, done what we can here? Because I think that 
anti-abortion activists are trying to be as creative as possible uh, to chip away. Like there was a state legislator in Missouri who wanted to pass legislation to prohibit women in Missouri from traveling to another state to get an abortion. I don't understand how that works. Like legally, like I'm not a lawyer, but like legally speaking, if I could prohibit one state um, residents from doing something that might impact me, like we would have done that on gun rights already. <laughs> right. D.C. would have sued another state to say, y'all need to stop selling guns because they're coming to the District of Columbia. So um, anyway, I, I'm really grateful to um, Councilmember Robert White um, for holding that legislation. Uh, for holding a hearing on that legislation and legislation that Councilmember Nadeau introduced right before we left for recess. Um, and we've been working with his office and the office of the attorney general and advocates. And I'm, I'm excited that we'll, we'll move that bill um, in the fall. And you think the prognosis is, is good for the bill, for the bills? I sure hope so. I mean, if any of my colleagues feel differently about it, they have certainly been quiet <laughs> yeah. um, thus far. How do the how do the co-sponsors look on the bills? I mean, all of the bills have enough votes via co-sponsors and co-introductions to pass. I think, um, you know, we have to make some minor adjustments here or there um, to address some legal concerns. But I I think overall, in terms of the sentiment, um, you know, there are a lot of things for which we are divided on in the district government. <laughs> Um, but this happens to be one of those issues where I think the council, the mayor's office, the office of the attorney general um, are fairly united in terms of our quest to protect the rights of not just women in the District of Columbia, women and, and their families. Let me just say, because I don't this is not just about women. This is about any birthing people, but also the people who support um, birthing people. Um, and then also our ability to provide care to um, others who aren't able to receive it in jurisdictions. Um, I hate the idea that like someone has to travel to the District of Columbia, but we know, you know, from the data already that even before the Dodds decision, um, a high percentage of the abortions that take place in the District of Columbia today are not actually of DC residents. And do you think we're, I, I guess that that is proof positive that that we're doing a good enough job getting the word out to our own people and to people who need it in other states that that we are a protected space? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is one of those situations where I'm glad the Internet exists. Um, I'm glad that people feel like they have, <clears throat> excuse me through social media, internet, and otherwise, have the ability to find the information that they're looking for. Um, you know, I grew up as a military brat. I think we talked about this the very first time that we talked. And I do think very, like, you know, I went to high school in Georgia. Um, it wasn't a rural part of Georgia. It was actually one of the cities. But I do think about people who live in states like that, in, in, in rural parts of the state, where not only do they not have a hospital, but they don't have an OBGYN um, in their county, right? Uh, so um, I, I feel a sense of responsibility for DC residents, but um, as an American citizen, I also feel a, a deep responsibility for how this impacts women and girls and birthing people throughout the country. 
Right. And we, as we are constantly reminded, uh, technology is a blessing and a curse. And in terms of this ban, well, it goes both ways. I mean, we've seen cases, you know, of Facebook turning over records of families discussing internal family health care decisions and travel decisions and being the, that data being turned over uh, to law enforcement for prosecution. But conversely, if you want to put a uh, damper on conversation about getting access to care, it's much harder to do. You know, Comstock laws, you ban sending things through the mail. Well, there's a lot of ways to send things now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're private yeah. companies. There's electronically, you know, there's so many different ways. Mm-hmm. WhatsApp, you know, I mean, there's so many ways to send information now that it's uh, both sides on this battle are going to try to use technology to their advantage. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I just, um, I, I, I think I read the story that you're talking about in terms of the Facebook app or the Facebook messages that were being sent. Um, there are, I, you know, I think this is also going to be a very interesting time for American citizens, because up until this point, I would say, um, I wouldn't think about abortions as like a story that you read about in the local paper, right? It's not something that you hear about on the nightly news. Very few women um, who've had abortions actually talk about them out loud, even though it is something that happens to a lot of women, whether it be, um, uh, you know, uh, needing abortion care to handle a miscarriage or something to that effect or a pregnancy that is unviable. Um, and now I think you're going to be seeing more and more stories about how the Dodds decision, as well as states taking steps to prohibit and restrict how that's going to impact everyday people. And it's not going to be because oh, the number of abortions have skyrocketed. No, it's now that we are talking about it. Um, you know, I I have a shirt that says, everyone loves someone who's had an abortion, right? You may not know it. You may not know what the story is behind it, but it is likely that someone in your life has done so. And I think that, um, you know, we saw that play out in Kansas where they had the referendum um, just a few weeks ago. And, you know, overwhelmingly, the Kansan voters voted no um, in terms of giving the legislature the ability to restrict abortion rights. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have some people who have experiences very quietly. But when you put it on the ballot, they're like, no, I want other people to be able to have the choice that I had. Um, so I, I it's it's going to be very interesting. I would invite, I like, I, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, um, an administrator at a university, um, in the Southeast in terms of like, how are you guys going to be handling this new environment? Um, especially given the interplay with campus sexual assault, um, rules around investigations and, and all of those different things. And I was actually just reading an article that was talking about, um, how any type of healthcare that's done at a student health center on a university campus doesn't have the same privacy protections as healthcare done in a doctor's office or at a hospital in terms of HIPAA. 
and, you know, university officials are having to think through what does that mean? Right. <laughs> like there, I feel like we have opened up Pandora's box. Um, and I, I hope, I hope no one dies in the process. I hope no one is severely hurt in the process by, um, the Supreme Court being able to make a decision not based on healthcare, not based on circumstance, um, but to, to decide to take away a right, which we haven't done in so long, taking away rights from people. That, yeah. Yeah, it is um, painful and complex. Um, with no transition at all, I want to pivot to our second uh, topic <laughs> to talk about uh, and return to the theme of uh, Twitter, uh, because uh, a couple weeks ago, um, no, a couple weeks ago, a few days ago, um, yeah. there was a, a tweet that came out uh, that said uh, this long delayed D.C. requirement for daycare workers to have college degrees will be truly terrible for everyone except Montessori daycares where workers already have college degrees if it goes into effect. Um, and this went fair for DC area, early childhood education, Twitter, uh, fairly viral. Um, and it's interesting. It's an interesting case study because um, there's a little bit of everything that's wrong with Twitter wrapped into this because first of all, yes, <laughs> we, uh, the tweet was actually tweeting out an article. Um, and if you drill down on the article, the organization um, that uh, had written the article um, is, uh, I think, the Institute of Justice. Uh, yeah. And it said uh, their mission statement is their uh, nonprofit public interest law firm. Our mission is to end widespread abuses of government power. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and your constitutional rights. And then if you read through in the article, and I'll just remind people that Twitter did a smart thing fairly recently, that when you're retweeting an article, it says, do, do you want to read the article before you retweet that? And people don't uh, click the article. They don't. They don't. <laughs> but, but anyway, so further in this article that no one clicked because of Twitter, um, despite Twitter warning them about it, uh, they said that the bill would... Um, impose huge costs on daycare workers, quote, without teaching them anything useful about caring for infants and toddlers. Mm -hmm. um, and it continues to say, uh, today's opinion treats the right to earn an honest living as something government regulators can grant or take away based on their slightest whim. Because I know you just, you're sitting there in your home mm -hmm. and you're like, how can I take away people's right to earn an honest living by creating irrational uh, requirements. Um, so anyway, this is, again, a long lead up to you came in and with what I thought was an extremely useful, detailed uh, string of tweets that clearly took you a fair amount of work. You're like, okay, you know, it's fun to dunk on the DC government. And out of context, it, you know, you might be able to wonder what was going on here. Let me elucidate this for you yeah um so why don't you take this opportunity to and obviously you can't quote chapter and verse because it was 10 tweets that were extremely detailed but 
why, why don't you help talk us down from uh, this uh, tweet that got us all spun up? Yeah, thanks, Josh. And first, let me just say, I'm so glad that you provided the context in terms of the organization who provided the article that kind of sort of started all of this because a lot of people don't actually look at sources, right? I feel like that was a very fundamental thing that I learned in middle school when you start to learn about research. Research papers is like, check their sources. Don't read it. Trust everything you read from the internet. And certainly don't just trust a tweet, <laughs> which was wrong. Um, and I remember it, it was a Saturday night. Um, I was reading it and I was also reading the replies because people were tagging me in it. And my husband was like, do you really want to go down this road? And I'm like, I don't like when people blame me for things that aren't true, right? Like I, as a council member, DC council, we may, DC government, we may not always do things that are popular for everybody, right? There are different strokes for different folks. And some people may feel like sometimes they are particularly against something that we do. Okay, I'm willing to accept that, <laughs> those licks. I'm willing to engage in debate, but I feel like we all have to be starting from the same place of facts. And in this particular case, I also felt like they were, well, number one, they were wrong. So the, the original tweet said, DC is requiring all daycare workers to have college degrees, and we're not. That is not what the requirement is. Um, the requirement for early educate early childhood educators around credentials um, is that anyone who is providing care at a licensed DC facility needs to have at least a um, child development associate credential, which is very specific to what it means to provide early childhood care at a high quality. Um, not just in DC, but nationwide. It is the most widely recognized credential. It's called a CDA. You do not have to go to a college to get a CDA. Actually, in the District of Columbia, you can actually start working towards your CDA while you're still in high school, right? That is the beauty of this. Um, Bria Public Charter School, a lot of our adult public charter schools offer um, programs to help people get their CDA. Yes, surrounding universities like American and Trinity and UDC do as well. But one of the things I just want to sort of distill for people is that we're talking about coursework in brain development. Um, we're talking about coursework in safety. We're talking about coursework in terms of how to best provide a stimulated activities and environment for very young babies and brains who people think can't learn. But in fact, that period from zero to five, you are learning like the most at that time, like in terms of brain development and science development, birth to five is like critically important. And, you know, several years ago, education, ECE, early childhood education advocates started to look at the quality of care that was being provided across the district and decided hey, we need to step it up in terms of quality. Um, as I mentioned in the tweets, a lot of this stemmed from in 2007 um, and 2008, the council passed legislation to establish voluntary universal pre-K three and pre-K four across the district. Now everybody's all excited about it, but at the time it wasn't, um, it was a very controversial idea of we're taking three and four year olds from a childcare setting, and then we're gonna be putting them into schools, 
DC public schools or public charter schools. One of the concerns that was raised was around equity. If your child um, was lucky enough to get a slot at a DCPS school, they would be taught by a teacher who has a minimum of a bachelor's degree because that is what DCPS requires. And then those teachers would also earn on the WTU pay scale. Meanwhile, if your child stayed at a childcare center that is in a community-based organization, um, they may not have any credential whatsoever besides a high school diploma, um, but also those educators would only be would be basically earning a lot of them minimum wage. And so the conversation was around, is this going to exacerbate the achievement gap when the whole reason we're doing this is to boost kindergarten readiness, right? The whole reason that we want to get the babies young is to help make sure that everybody is on the same track and prepared for kindergarten. And here we're having a conversation about, well, I, you know, teacher quality, which is frankly a conversation that we've been having in the public school, public education debate writ large for a long time, particularly in DC, right? Like impact is based on this idea that teacher quality um, improves student outcomes. Um, and so uh, in 2008, the council passed the pre-K bill that basically said, if you teach three and four-year-olds in the District of Columbia, you have to at least have a bachelor's degree. And in exchange, the state superintendent of education will provide a payment equal to what DCPS gets per kid. And the teachers who are teaching at CBOs, three and four-year-olds, would earn parity with DCPS teachers as well. So that was kind of like a win-win. We get high quality teachers in both sectors, and then the money will also follow as well. Um, to take it a step further, then there was a question around, okay, we've taken care of three and four-year-olds, but what do we do in the birth to three space? Um, and again, you know, this nationwide conversation around how does teacher quality impact student learning? How does teacher quality impact student outcomes? On the federal level, Congress had already made a decision that when it comes to Head Start and Early Head Start, um, which are programs designed uh, for low-income families, early childhood education programs nationwide, Congress said, nope, you need to have at least an associate's degree, period, <laughs> um, for those programs. And then, so in DC, um, advocates here started to say, okay, can we establish the same type of credential requirement here? And will this help improve the quality of what's happening um, in our ECE space to really give our kids the best chance uh, to set them up for the best chance for learning? And so it was a regulation from ASI that established this uh, requirement. So if you are an assistant teacher in a child care center, you have to have at least a CDA. If you are a, a, a teacher, um, you have to have at least an associate's degree in early childhood education. And if you are a center director, you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. Now, for most people, they're like, oh, why are we requiring four-year degrees for center directors? And the way that I like to think of it as a, if you are a director of a childcare center, not only are you the business person, right? Because Child care centers are a business. Right. 
you're dealing with a lot of money um, and, and, and some of it taxpayer money if you are receiving a subsidy or receiving a grant or something to that effect. But also you are supposed to be the chief learning person in your building. As the center director, you are the one who establishes the curriculum. You are the one who sets the tone in terms of like what is happening in each of the classrooms, if you have multiple classrooms and things like that. So I like to think of a center director as the principal of a elementary school or a principal of a middle school or a principal of a high school. They are supposed to be the leader of that building. And so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're the chief operational officer. Yeah. Make sure the trains are running on time. You're the chief educational officer. Right. Um, and you're not, and meanwhile, your business, you're not manufacturing widgets. You know, you're creating, building children's brains. You know, yes. it's- Citizens. You, point, <laughs> you, you pointed out in, in one of the tweets, like your analogy was, you're not just a babysitter. No. I My analogy is it's not, child valet parking yeah it's not like you know hand them the keys so have them near the front i'm gonna need to get them in a rush you know i'll be back around three like that's not that's the way it's been perceived possibly right and i think that around the country a lot of people think that this is what this is right child care is just babysitting not recognizing that um let's say you have a kid who's at a child care center from nine to five you'd be very disappointed. I would be very, I would be supremely concerned if from nine to five, my child didn't do anything that was learning based. Right. right. You just parked them in front of a screen and they you parked them in front of a screen or you just put them in a room, but you know, they're centers around the district, right? There's reading that is happening. Even if it is kids just hearing, reading or whatever, there's music class, <laughs> right? There are trips to the library. Um, there, There's art that is encompassing other types of learning materials, right? Like learning about spe- animals and species and, you know, all of this different types of thing. It's through play, but it is learning. And, you know, I recognize that childcare is supremely expensive across the United States, not just in the District of Columbia, but across the United States. It was something that I worked on when I worked for Senator Schumer on the national level because we wanted to do something in the childcare space. And this was after lots of work to get senators to think of childcare, not just as a care issue, but to think for, of it as a workforce issue. Um, if you want parents to go back to work, um, they need someplace safe for their kids to go, right? So it is the workforce of today, and then it is the workforce of your future, right? The investments that you make in them today will give you productive output in 20 years when they become adults, right? Um, But, you know, (laughs) what seems like a lot of money doesn't go very far. And I remember, you know, talking to Chuck and he was like, like, why is this so expensive? And I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> they like explain all of the various economic inputs to it. But if you ask any child care center director, particularly in the District of Columbia, what are the most expensive inputs that they have? It is people and facilities. 
So on the people side, it's not that you're paying for people with childcare degrees, but it is literally because living in the District of Columbia is expensive. So I cannot pay someone $5.25 an hour and think that I am going to get talent or I can't pay, you know what I'm saying? Like no one, well, you know, the minimum wage in DC is not $5.25, but you know, it was at one point um, under the federal minimum wage. And so pay has had to increase to keep up with inflation, to keep up with costs. It has nothing to do with credentials, but it's just like, literally we want people to be able to live. And a lot of childcare workers are currently earning the minimum wage and, and we're working on that front to sort of raise those wages. The second thing is around facilities. And most people don't think about it this way either. So in DC, and I would say around the country too, from a regulation standpoint, when you are dealing with infant and toddlers, they are usually on the ground floor of buildings for safety reasons. If there is a fire, um, you, you know, I, I'm not sure. I don't, uh, well, yeah, uh, you may not have seen it, but so if there is a fire drill that happens at a childcare center, most people don't see it, but like for in the infant room, they literally put babies in um, cribs that have wheels and they roll them out. Right. That is the fastest way that has been determined to be able to move infants in an emergency is to be able to tie you up and move you out. You need to be on a first floor of a building for that. Okay, so in DC, who are childcare centers competing with in terms of commercial space on the first floor of buildings? Restaurants. Restaurants, banks. Um, retail shops, et cetera. And I mean, frankly, like the rent is too damn high. <laughs> like, you know, uh, if anybody has ever asked so, uh, a, someone who owns a business in DC in a desirable location, how much they pay a month in rent for the first floor, you would be like, wow, how? <laughs> Um, so those are two things. I introduced legislation to try to help subsidize the cost of facilities. Again, seeking to bring down the cost of care. If, if, if the government can pick up some pieces of some of these costs, then that would allow for centers to be able to bring down the cost for families, but it's expensive. And it just, it just, I mean, uh, this is not news to anyone that, that social media doesn't always allow for complexity, but, I know. you know, when you take that one sliver, like, oh, why are they doing this crazy thing? It ignores that DC is on the cutting edge of early childhood education and made it a guaranteed, uh, you know, guaranteed access to people and guaranteed funding mm-hmm. for that access, pre-K three and four, um, folks don't take that into account. We don't get any credit for that. This is a a necessary follow-on, a complication that, you know, if you think it through, like your point about equity, like, can you imagine if we didn't put a restriction in about education and then all of a sudden a news story came out that said in the fancy upper Northwest daycares, the average worker has a bachelor's degree, but in home-based, in board seven and eight, folks, you know, maybe have a, a equivalency, uh, you know, not even a diploma, there'd be a scandal. Like, why didn't the council think about exactly. this? So we don't have a two-track system. 
But meanwhile, we did think of it and are trying to avoid having a two-track system, and it's still coming back to bite us. Right. And I mean, I think, though, people will think about the expense piece. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I have a three-year-old who is going to be entering pre-K free this fall, and I'm so excited to get the $21,000 a year we pay in childcare back. (laughs) Right. It's like you were paying two mortgages and then you go back to paying just one mortgage. You know, that day that hits. Right. And so I totally understand where people are feeling like, gosh, it's so expensive. There are wait lists everywhere and all of these different pieces. But again, you know, I think to your point around not really having the ability for nuance here, um, there was so much more that I wanted to say that I couldn't say because I felt like I had already done a lot <laughs> in the Twitter thread. But, you know, also taking it a step further, um, we've been providing scholarships to people for years. You can get your CDA for free in D.C. It takes, a, you know, I think there are programs as um, little as six months. Um, there are some that take as, as I think the max maybe about 10 months. Um, to get that credential, which it doesn't actually require you to do full time. You can do it while you're currently working. Um, So like working up to it. Um, There are a lot of people who decide to go a step further, an associate's degree. Um, And a lot of this is around also building a career ladder for individuals in this field. Um, ECE advocates felt like if we were going to make a case to raise the pay of workers, we need to professionalize um, our sector, right? Um, I think it goes back to those conversations around pink collar jobs um, and not having people think that it's just babysitting. Well, if everybody has a credential, we are sort of elevating the profession. So you are recognizing, um, you know, the skill and work. And it, it, there are layers to this. It's totally complicated. And I'm not saying that it's clean and easy at all, right? Um, we have. Uh, predominantly women, um, lots of immigrants, predominantly women of color. Um, And there's some people who've been doing this for 23, 24 years. And the idea to them, like, I've been doing this for 24 years. You're going to make me go like get a credential to sort of have that conversation. And, um, you know, I, I was trying to like sort of dust off in the backs of my mind. I was like trying to look back to 2015 when we were having these conversations when I was a council staffer. to sort of understand, did we consider experience in lieu of credential, right? Um, if you have been in the field for 24 years, do you need um, an associate's degree in early childhood education in order to show your readiness? Doesn't your 24 years count for something? Um, but anyway, in all of that, I definitely, um, I think we should have a hearing on this. I, I think it deserves a fresh hearing, a fresh conversation. But I don't want people to think that this is in some way meant to penalize workers. It's not. It is, um, you know, it is, it was done in the best interest of kids. And it was done in the best interest, I think, of the workforce in terms of where they signaled they wanted to go around professionalizing um, altogether, right? Like a lot of people don't realize, like in New York City, the daycare workers are unionized. Over 6,000 workers unionized. Um, And they have credential requirements. 
that was the other thing that I kind of like, people were like, oh my gosh, DC is the first in the country to always try to do and be extra. And it's like, actually, we're not. <laughs> um, Maryland has credential requirements for daycare workers. New York has credential requirements. Nebraska has credential requirements. Even Utah has credential requirements for if you're going to be a director of a center, right? So like we have, as a country, made a determination that something beyond a high school diploma signals something in terms of your qualifications, your understanding, your expertise, your understanding. Have we overemphasized credentials in certain sectors? Sure, right? Like, I don't need a bachelor's degree to do data entry. We have companies who ask for that, but like, that is not something that is necessary. Um, do I need to know something about early childhood development to be an effective early childhood educator? I think so. I think so. And um, unfortunately, we're running super tight on time. But speaking oh. of not penalizing workers, can you very briefly talk about the application process that is open currently for early childhood workers? Yes, Josh. So we decided, uh, and now again, this is a process, but we wanted to raise the wages of early childhood workers. Um, last year, the council did a modest increase in income taxes to both increase the number of housing vouchers that we have available and then also to give childcare workers a raise. And so right now there's an application open. Um, the first payment uh, is up to $14,000 for eligible um, teachers and assistant teachers at childcare centers across the District of Columbia. Um, you just have to submit an application. Um, which I took a look at in terms of the documentation that they're asking for. It's very minimal. Um, you need, you know, uh, ID, <laughs> um, proof that you actually work where you say you work. Actually, you don't even need that because that's in the computer system already. But um, essentially, you know, you provide this documentation and then within three to four weeks, you get this payment. Um, we did, uh, some things in this last budget cycle to make sure that by taking this income, it doesn't disqualify you from other benefit programs that you might be a part of. So if you're receiving Medicaid or something to that effect, this doesn't count against you. Um, but then it's your money. Do what you want with it. And the holidays are coming up. So, you know, if I were a childcare worker, you're telling me I can get an additional $14,000 this calendar year, um, I would be running to the website, but the deadline for this first round of payment is September 20th. Um, go to the Aussie webpage. Um, I think even if you just went to Aussie.dc.gov, it's the first thing on their website now um, about the applications. And we just need to get the word out um, and become evangelists to this because we have millions of dollars available um, and we just need to get the people. <laughs> Right. And as, as is always true, there's no justice on Twitter that the people dunking on us because the education requirement, that gets a thousand likes. But when we're saying there's $14,000 available to these critical, good, essential people who are helping to form our children, you put those out and there's crickets, you know. So we definitely all need to work together to get the word out so that the uh, these employees can get what they deserve. Yep. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry to cut us off. We're over time, but um, 
thank you as always for being generous for coming back for another interview um and uh listeners uh remember to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud or wherever you get your podcasts just search under hearing the council uh thank you listeners again for joining us tune in next time we're on dc radio at 96.3 on your fmhd4 dial or at dcradio.gov i'm josh gibson this is not a council hearing this is hearing the council thank you so much council member i really appreciate your time and and keep up keep up the good work on twitter (laughs) thank you have a good one all right take care thanks bye-bye